Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, where the subject matter is slightly outside the territory's realms, but told by veteran Australian and Hong Kong journalist Luke Hunt. As a student, Luke first learned about Pham Su An, a South Vietnamese who spied for the Communist North during the Vietnam War. He worked as a journalist for Time and Reuters, and through propaganda, this spy for North Vietnam helped convince the Americans that it was time for their troops to go home. After the Vietnam War ended in 1975, Pham Su An became disenchanted with the communist government, but continued to live in Vietnam until his death in 2006. He told Luke that he could write a book about his life once he was dead. So, on Hong Kong Heritage this week, Luke Hunt tells me about his book, Punji Trap, Farm Suan, The Spy Who Didn't Love Us. I first moved here before the handover, March 97, and then I was with Agence France Press then, and Hong Kong was its headquarters for the region, and then I went out to Afghanistan, was bureau chief there, and again in Cambodia, and that basically established me in Hong Kong and then I went freelance about 12 years ago. And, uh, yeah, that's kept me fluid for the last 12 years. In the late 1980s, you were yep. a student and uh, you started looking into uh, key person that's in right. Vietnam. That was Pham Suan. I came across him through a book that I read, which was A Reporter's War by Hugh Lung. And some of the people in that book I would meet as a professional journalist and some of them became friends. One of them was uh, Tham Nok Din, who worked for Australian Associated Press, where I essentially started my career. And uh, Din organised for me to go up and meet Farm Suan in 1992. And we went from there and eventually the book evolved over a long time and quite a gestation for this one. Yes, um, you've been working on it really in essence. Um, 30 years. Yes, and, <laughs> so, um, and also yeah. you had an agreement with Farm Suan that, that uh, it wouldn't actually, uh, nothing would be published until after his death, which was in 2006. Correct, and, and it wasn't just with Arne. It was, I spoke with a lot of people, including General Tran Van Tra, several senior Viet Cong figures, other diplomats and people who knew Arne very well. It was, it was damn annoying, actually, because I was sitting on this cracker of a story and everyone was off the record. And then eventually I just said to all of them, how long is off the record for? You know, I want to write this. And uh, they all came back. They all said the same thing, until I'm dead. So it sat there for quite some time. Uh, about two or three years ago, I was back at Mum's in a cold winter Mel Melbourne day and I pulled it out and went through it and I started to get cracking on it again and I went through it page by page and it was like, well, can this page be published? Will it offend anyone? Will I be breaking any of the rules? And eventually I got there, yeah. So what is a punji trap? Well, a punji trap is a classic cheap booby trap, really. It's a, a hole in the ground and uh, you put bamboo sticks in it, sharpened, and cover it with uh, all sorts of bacteria, which I'll leave to your imagination, and cover it with leaves. And then uh, the idea is that an enemy combatant will fall into it, pierce himself. Incredibly painful. And what it does is it normally might have a platoon, say, of six or 12 people. It only takes one of them to be injured, and it takes four people 
to carry them out, normally screaming, crying, letting everybody know where they are. It's a very effective, cheap way of dealing with uh, enemy combatants in hostile territory. Other tricks is to sort of, they would dig big punchy traps on the side of a track and then fire a couple of shots. And so the soldiers would actually duck and then roll over into the gully and roll into a punchy trap. Uh, It's rather very nasty. Now, what was your interest in Vietnam and the Vietnam War? In, in, I mean, the Vietnam War had mm. finished in 1975. Sure, but like a lot of people my vintage, we grew up on it. I remember the famous photographs of uh, the little girl running through the streets naked, appearing on television. We had a close association with the war in that my uncles were up for the draft and we had one very close friend in the family who was a medic and his helicopter was shot down near uh, the Cambodian border and he was killed. His name was John Gillespie and actually the book is dedicated to him. He became quite a renowned MIA. He was one of the last MIAs to have for his bones to be retrieved and his remains brought home, which wasn't that long ago actually. Now, with Farm Suan, what, what sort of role did he play? I think Arne is one of the most fascinating characters of the 20th century, certainly up there with uh, Richard Sorge, the great Russian spy who was in Japan during World War II. Uh, if you'd said 10, 20, 30 years or even today that one man changed the course of the Vietnam War and was responsible for South Vietnam's defeat and uh, the American withdrawal, people would laugh at you. But that's exactly what he did. And he was this man who was trusted by the Americans, ensconced initially with Reuters and then with Time magazine, and was trusted the entire time he was working to have the Americans defeated in battle. But what he really did was he convinced his editors that the Americans were losing the war, when in fact they were not. In 1968, after the Tet Offensive, Operation Phoenix became very effective. The Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese admitted many years later that they were basically defeated at that point. But what they wanted to do was to convince the Americans that they were in control, they were winning the war, and that the Americans just basically had to leave. And that's eventually what happened was the political withdrawal. So the argument, it was a propaganda war more than anything else. And it was convincing the American public that you're not winning this war, you can't win this war, so you may as well go home. And that's what happened. And as a result, the Americans abandoned their key ally. South Vietnam was a country, people conveniently forget that. And a lot of people did not want to live under communism. A lot of people had fought and a lot of people had died for that belief and they were abandoned and South Vietnam was gone. In 1968, with the Tet Offensive, tell me a little bit more detail about that and where, as you say, then and and this man's role in turning it around. Tet Offensive, Tet is the annual Vietnamese holiday. It had been planned quite a few years earlier and the idea was that there would be a ceasefire and during the Tet Offensive, Vietnamese have the marvellous habit of igniting a gazillion firecrackers all going off at the same time. And the idea was to rise up and have a general offensive across South Vietnam, inspiring everybody to take up arms and fight right when the firecrackers and all the noise was going off to confuse the Americans, and not just the Americans, there were nine other countries involved, including Australia, New Zealand, South Korea, Thailand. That was the plan. Arne had devised a plan 
probably three or four years earlier. They were looking at doing it initially in 1966, but the communists did not believe they had enough support. They thought they did in 1968, and it was basically a failure. But the headlines of uh, Viet Cong troops inside the perimeter of the US Embassy, most people believe that they actually occupied the embassy. They did not, though, within the perimeter of the US Embassy. But that footage went across the world and across America, and that convinced a disbelieving public, particularly with the administrations initially by Lyndon Johnson and then Richard Nixon, they had every right to be cynical. The television footage and the headlines of the US Embassy being occupied, then there was a My Lai massacre around the same time, that had really struck nerves in America and turned public opinion against the war. And one of the dirty deeds that Arne did was what we'd call today fake news. To convince the American public that they were indeed losing, he uh, concocted false interviews. And I've interviewed Time journalists who told me how, you know, they get a phone call late at night, let's uh, go for a walk, and they'd be walking through the mean streets of Saigon, back alleys and this kind of thing, and then they would meet someone who they would sit down and tell them that, you know, these are our numbers, we're out in front, you guys don't have a chance. Uh, Basically, it was all nonsense. And at the same time... um, Going back much earlier, there was a Battle of Art Bac, which was the first defeat by the Americans in battle in Vietnam. And Arne had the full plans. He had the whole battle plan of what was going to happen. And he gave it to the communists in Hanoi. They knew what was going to happen and they plotted it accordingly and men died. Let's have a look at Farm Suan then. We'll go to how you met him later. Sure. But So how does he, he start off? He's South Vietnamese. I might just quickly add, he's, he was totally charming. Yeah, uh, I'm like sure. Your, like your favourite uncle. Um, <laughs> no doubt about that. He grew up around Mito and Kanto in the Delta area. And initially, his contact came with the communists during World War II. He joined up to fight the Japanese. Very limited experience, but he came to the attention of the communist authorities as far back as then. Then in the early 1950s, he was sworn in full member and basically he went to work in Customs House, working with the bureaucracy and the government. He was leaking information then to the communists. Basically, the deal then was uh, to oust the French. Then in the early 50s, he scored himself a scholarship to the United States and he went there with the full backing of the communists who wanted him to stay there, who wanted him to go as far as a PhD. They were happy for him to spend five or six years there earning his stripes, but his father was ill. So he returned after a couple of years. He studied in California, went across to New York where he observed the UN. Uh, He did a internship with uh, the Sacramento Bee. And then from there, he returned to uh, Saigon where he got a job with uh, the Vietnam News Agency, VNA. Uh, And then from there, he was hired by Reuters where he was eventually sacked. I might just quickly add that of all the journalists that knew Arne, there was only one that ever really picked him for what he was and that was the New Zealand journalist, Nick Turner, who sacked him at Reuters. From there, he went and worked with Beverly Ann Deep, who was a uh, freelance correspondent, New York Herald Tribune, uh, Newsweek and a couple of others. She was one person that was difficult to get a hold of and I suspect the reason why is because she was married to a, uh, a Marine colonel. And I think there were, it's obvious that there would have been potentially a lot of compromise in there. 
But uh, that was only for a year or two, and then he got picked up by Time magazine, where he spent the rest of his career and continued to work for Time after 1975, when he became totally disenfranchised. The the war was over, the communists had arrived, and Arn was, like, disbelieving in what the communists, the reality of communism and what the communists were actually like. He was very disappointed. He got into a lot of trouble with the communist authorities in Hanoi who believed that their man had been undercover for too long. It's absolutely fascinating. So this is Farm Suan, who is South Vietnamese um, and uh, uh, within the media um, in South Vietnam, so with uh, um, Time magazine, as you say, or with mm-hmm. Time, yep. um, he acts, uh, I mean, basically as a, a North Vietnamese spy. Absolutely, he was. He received five heroic medals, which in communist parlance was about as high as you get. His rank, when he eventually died, was Brigadier General, and he was ranked as a colonel throughout most of his career. So when you're, you're doing this story for about 30 years, mm-hmm. so I mean, as you say, he's quite a charming man, which I imagine that he would be in order to right. also uh, persuade people of who he is or not. But I mean, you know, did you have more difficulty talking to people from time saying, well, you were had? Well, yes, in short, and they didn't want to know, but the correspondents were terrific. And I spoke to a lot of them, not just Time Magazine, but I mean, Bill Rademakers was terrific. He just said, you know, he played us like a Stradivarius. Reuters were terrific. I went to London and the senior Reuters management came down, gave me the full interview and everything they could, including a chap called uh, David Chip, who was had then moved on to a press association. And uh, yeah, they were terrific and uh, their reasoning was quite sensible. We'd like to know more about him as well. Yes, I can imagine. Now, how do you meet him? Well, uh, when I was working with Australian Associated Press, Fan Knocked In was also working there. was actually hired by Arne to initially work for Reuters, and there he remained until after 1975, when he was eventually evacuated after a lot of trouble, probably about 1980 before he got out. And I was researching Arne for an undergrad thesis at university, and I got in touch, and we met, and then Din was you know, you must meet him, you must go up there. And so I spoke with the embassy in Canberra, organised the visa, and I also spoke with Jance Mark Nielsen, who was married to an Australian journalist, Peter Smark, and he worked for Reuters and she worked for Radio Saigon in the early 1960s. It gets a little complicated. Arne and Jan Smark were best of buddies. In fact, I suspect Arne had a crush on her. I met Jan and she wrote me a letter to take and deliver to Arne. So when I got there, I went to the press office and said, I'd like to meet this chap. The guy, his name was Mr Chin. He was like, hmm, not so sure about that. And then I mentioned that, can you tell him that I have a letter for him from Jan Smark? And then it came back that, yes, he'd like to meet you. And so it rolled from there. How did you feel when you first met him? <laughs> I took a friend of mine, because I was a bit concerned, just as backup, and we are like, well, what do you take? What do you do? With... So we took him a chocolate cake. <laughs> and, uh, but by the time we got there, because the Saigon heat, and we held up this chocolate cake and all the chocolate was dripping out of the cardboard box. And it's like, but anyway, he was quite convivial. Yeah, he was, he was, he was good. He was like, please come in. And I got to know him through perhaps a dozen meetings 
over the next 10 years. Uh, when I first met him, nothing had really been written about him. Uh, it had been mentioned in a couple of books. Some books even mentioned the great spy but wouldn't name him. Uh, but then over the years, more, more and more information came out. I became a lot more comfortable with him and he was a lot more comfortable with himself and what he'd done. I'm talking with veteran journalist Luke Hunt, who I've known for many years and who spent any number of years and keeps returning to Hong Kong, where he's got a base here. He's the author of The Punji Trap, Farm Su An, The Spy Who Didn't Love Us. And this is about a man who Luke has on and off been researching over the last 30 years and was a key spy for the North Vietnamese, a South Vietnamese himself, but managed to entrench himself with various major news organisations during the Vietnam War and arguably managed to change sentiment in the US towards the Vietnam War and even give the impression when the Americans weren't losing that in fact they were along with some of their allies. So do you see, when you look at somebody mm. like Farm Suan, it's incredible. I mean, he obviously was very passionate about what the communists were doing, Indeed. even though he ends up later on disappointed. Do you see him as causing the deaths of lots of people? Do you see him as actually bringing the war to a close earlier and perhaps saving a few? There's no doubt he caused the deaths of a lot of people, but it's a little more complicated than that. With quite a few of the journalists and people he knew personally, if they were in grave danger, he would go for the rescue. He would tip them off, say, don't be there. There was a case where there were four journalists killed it showed on after the Tet Offensive, and he was devastated by that. He really did do his best to keep journalists out of jail or get them out of jail. The Viet Cong had issued basically a death warrant on several people to basically put a price on their head, and he had it removed. So if you're a close personal contact with Arn, he was charming, personal, and he would move hell on earth to look out for you. But when it comes to the battlefield, it was just statistics. He saw it as us versus them. And he was, you know, he was so entrenched by the early 1960s when the Americans didn't have a clue where they were that he couldn't have left even if he wanted to. You know, it's not like you can wake up one day, say, say by 1963, he would have been in the communist movement for 20 years had gone to the United States and studied and done all of this with his blessing, a veteran of World War II and the fight against the French. You're not going to turn around and say, look, I've had enough now, I'm off. I'm just going to work as a journalist. We don't need to have anything to do with each other. You know, that's not going to happen. So he was, he was so deeply entrenched that there, there could be an argument made that he had no choice, but he did an enormous amount of work for them. And it really wasn't until after 1975 that his attitude to the communists really changed. Once he had a, he, I think he was naive and had starry-eyed views about what Ho Chi Minh was like and what the expectations were and that Vietnam would become this great superior culture once uh, the two, two Vietnams were unified. And it didn't happen. It's interesting what you're saying about South and North Vietnam. I think, including me, I mean, I, you know, it's, it's always uh, interesting to look at that whole area. And we do tend to see it as a single entity. Sure. And people should realise, I think the French got it right when it came to um, the initial divisions of Tonkin, Annam and Cochin, China. We uh, never used the word 
Viet or Vietnam. It was actually the Annamites or the Annams, I guess. Uh, linguistically, totally different. Culturally, totally different. Economically, totally different. The one thing that unifies Vietnam is that it's called the chopstick line, the, the Annamite ranges that run north-south and to the right they use chopsticks, which is Chinese culture, and to the left it's uh, fork and spoon, Cambodia and Thailand. They were very different societies and different linguistically. And the, now, well, it's all changed. But when people talk about unifying a Vietnam, not thoroughly convinced that it was ever a unified stretch of land anyway. Do you think it's unified now? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, South Vietnam's gone. The North Vietnamese won South Vietnam. I, I don't like saying that the uh, Americans lost the Vietnam War. They, they, see the, I tend to see uh, Vietnam as um, they lost a battle in the broader Cold War kind of spectrum, which they won. But the Vietnam War was uh, many things to many different people. I'm talking with veteran journalist Luke Hunt here at the FCC about the Punji Trap, Farm Sue An, the spy who didn't love us. Now, you choose to talk, I mean, there's, you know, mm. when, when we think about with the Vietnam War, there are so many things that you could could choose. With the book, is, I mean, there's going to be aspects of, you know, mm -hmm. it's a war scenario, so there's going to be aspects of battles, adventure, sure. espionage, so that's all. Yep. Is that what you're hoping that people take, that it's a romping read? Or? Yeah, no, I like the idea of a romping read. I know the first half is a little bit, uh, is a little dense, and that the older journalists kind of, oh, we know all that, and it's, yes, <laughs> however... But there's plenty who will see it as an well, education. Well, this is it. First thing I wanted to do was strip out the politics. Everyone's got an opinion on the Vietnam War. It never ends. And so many books have been written with the inbuilt biases of the author. Where I, I've spent many years working for wire services where that's a big no-no. We don't do that. So I, I stripped out, wanted to strip out the politics. And then you have to also look at who are you writing this book for. And there's an enormous audience out there of people who are fascinated by the Vietnam War who simply weren't around in those days, with, you know, people under 40. And so we need to explain what happened. It's interesting because, as you say, he starts off with he's enamoured by the communists yeah. in, in the Second World War. And, of course, that's a whole different battle because they're, they're, they're fighting the Japanese at that point. And, and this particular area is, that, well, like many others, but that particular area, it's, it's, it's sort of you've got these various colonial powers. You've sure. got all of these entrenched in, interests. And, as you say, Vietnam is not a country until after the Vietnam War. That's right. I mean, in fact, when I went there in uh, 1992, uh, there was the first international marathon in Ho Chi Minh City, as it had been renamed. But uh, it was actually considered the first international sports event in Vietnam's history. So, I mean, there, there, there are all these plays on it, which I, I think the world is kind of, and in particular Vietnam, it's a lot more grown up about these things now. The new generations have arrived, they've grown up, we've got millennials, um, people who have no knowledge of the war, and uh, they're all on iPhones, and Vietnam still has enormous enormous issues. Actually, I shouldn't be shy in saying that, they have some dreadful problems there. But uh, the people are smart, industrious, and they're plugged into the rest of the planet. So, yeah, times have changed. 
But it's interesting that you take a story forward that um, you are, it begins before the Vietnam War yeah. and then continues afterwards, because so often, as you say, the, the emphasis, and many times, of journalists is on a particular thing while it's right. occurring, and then they move on to the next story. Right. And you've got, uh, I mean, these people still exist after, you know, the main action is finished. So Farm Xuan, in right. fact, doesn't die until 2006. So what happens to him after the Vietnam War? Initially, he played ball with the communists, and then there are a couple of incidents which he uh, he had some very hard-ass bosses, and uh, he defied them over what a journalist... He, he believed in the journalist credo, he, he really did. And he stuck up for journalists and he... So he continues as a journalist? Yes, he still worked for Time magazine for another year. And Fan knocked in. He continued to work for Reuters uh, until basically everything was shut down. And then after that, he was under watch. He, I know he went to... He wouldn't talk about it too much, but he apparently went to Hanoi a couple of times. And I think he was interrogated up there and they simply... And they just basically blacklisted him. And, uh, Why? Because he just be, knew too much? or uh, Because they didn't trust him. He started speaking out on behalf of the journalists in South Vietnam who were his friends, and they didn't like that, and they started to believe that he had been undercover for too long. And then once they'd already decided that, there were three or four instances where he actually tried to get himself out of Vietnam. He wanted to uh, defect. There were three attempts, and... None of them came to anything, but it was enough to certainly raise the flag and Hanoi was most unimpressed by him. And things eased up kind of by about the early 90s. Things started to ease with the end of the Cold War and I think, the, I think Hanoi became a little more comfortable with itself and what it, what it now had. And just generally things have eased since then. I mean, and I might just quickly add, you know, the Khmer Rouge Tribunal is still going on in Cambodia. It's, it's coming to a close soon, I think, um, perhaps another year. But who founded the Khmer Rouge? Ho Chi Minh. Noradon Sinhal, uh, the king, remained an enormous figure on the international stage right up until his death in 2012. He was the one who did the deal that enabled the Viet Cong, the NVA, North Vietnamese Army, that is, and uh, the Chinese and the Khmer Rouge to use the Ho Chi Minh Trail through his country. He was the King Father until 2012 and uh, monarch up until about 2008, 2009. So, you know, the, the story didn't go away. It's just that uh, a lot of people lost interest after the Americans lost interest. Yes, and, uh, and also, as you say, these complications that, that don't necessarily are almost inconvenient That's right. for the international press. That's right. It, it, it's got to fit the narrative. And to be honest, the Vietnamese narrative had been totally bastardised by other people's politics over the years that it just becomes difficult to see the trees for the forest. Hence, that was a point. I mean, one of the reasons for the title, The Spy Who Didn't Love Us, was because um, there have been several headlines written in American publications where they referred to Farm Salon as a spy who loved us. And it's kind of this American redemption thing that, you know, oh, he was this spy and we lost the war, but he worked for us and he did love us, didn't he? Kind of. It's nonsense. He didn't. He didn't love you. He didn't. And that's why, hence, hence the subtitle, uh, he did his very best to make sure you were defeated in battle. And while a lot of us, uh, we all have at a personal level, great friendships and relationships with people who 
might not share uh, the same ideals or beliefs. They were personal relationships. It wasn't. He didn't love America. If he had, he may not have spied or done so much damage. My thanks to veteran Australian journalist Luke Hunt talking there about the life of Vietnam War spy Farm Suan, which he recounts in his book Punji Trap, Farm Suan, The Spy Who Didn't Love Us. If you'd like to know more about the book, do take a look at Luke's website, www.punjitrap.com. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>